to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, back with you again today. I'm a UCC pastor doing community ministry for racial justice and solidarity here in Denver, Colorado. You can learn more about me at FierceRevRemedies.com, and I'm also the faith organizer for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. SURGE is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice, so we want to remind folks that this podcast is designed for white people white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. Of course, this isn't meant to be white-only space, and we would love to hear feedback from folks of color about how we're doing. Nevertheless, we want to be clear that white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. The word is resistance. Speaking of feedback, we heard from some of y'all that we've been using some ableist language. We want to apologize to anyone this has harmed and voice our commitment to doing better in the future. We're thankful to the folks who brought this to our attention and we will do better. So as I've been putting together my thoughts for this podcast, I've been watching what has happened in Charlottesville. I imagine you have too. I felt a deep troubling in my spirit at this outburst of blatant expressions of white supremacy that tussles with the awareness that white supremacy has always used violence to perpetuate itself. As folks of color keep trying to tell us, there is nothing new here. I'm troubled at the outburst of it and I'm troubled that it's nothing new either. All of that. Maybe you're feeling some of that too. As we prepare to dig into today's text, the reading from Matthew, let's take a moment to sit with everything that Charlottesville asks our hearts and spirits and bodies to hold. Let's acknowledge the lengths to which white supremacy will go to uphold itself, even to killing a young white woman, Heather Heyer. Let's acknowledge those same dynamics writ large on the streets of Charlottesville are the same dynamics at play in our churches, our schools, our city councils. Let's hold all the beloveds who held down such beautiful and anguished resistance on the streets of Charlottesville this past weekend, all of them, and especially those who have been organizing on the ground for months folks of color, white accomplices, medics and healers, folks who provided food and shelter, the ones who are still there doing the everyday work whose names we may never know. Let's hold them 
and send them our love and solidarity. he's woke. We're on a roll here in the Gospel of Matthew finding resistance resources for our struggle as white folks against white supremacy and pushing back on texts and interpretive traditions that reinforce oppression. And this week is no different. So yeah, I'm looking at Matthew again, this 15th chapter. The lectionary editors parentheticalize verses 10 to 20 as if they're unrelated to the story of the Canaanite woman, but I want us to consider that whole section. In fact, it's important to remember where we are in this whole story, what sets up Jesus lashing out against Pharisees and his baffling mistreatment of the Canaanite woman. At the beginning of chapter 15, some Pharisees have come to Jesus and asked him about why he and his folks don't wash their hands before eating. And Jesus kind of goes off on them, basically accusing them of violating Torah, being hypocrites, making void the word of God. And he spits Isaiah at them. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the context from which Jesus starts talking about what comes in or out of the mouth, what gets uprooted or not, calling back to that parable of the weeds and the wheat. Again, that parable... And then this pretty ableist conflation of blindness with a lack of understanding. That's a lot of posturing. A lot of Jesus positioning himself as the one who gets it. The good one. The one who's really woke. Now, if you've been listening lately, you know our theory that Jesus is not doing well here in the middle of Matthew's narrative. How he's struggling, hurting, reeling from the execution of John, how he's trying to get away by himself, how he's trying to hold it together, but honestly, he's a hot mess. He's talking here about what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, but if his response to the Pharisees' question is what is in his heart, then wow, this is about as human as Jesus gets, lashing out at what honestly, to me, seems like a fair and curious question. Jesus is not interested in the surge value of calling in here at all. And we haven't even gotten to the Canaanite woman yet. No, Jesus thinks he's woke. He's got the scripture quotes, he's got the fancy metaphors, I bet he even has the t-shirt performing wokeness like he's the savior of the world or something. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. He calls the Canaanite woman a dog. What's actually in your heart, Jesus, that you perform wokeness but call this woman a dog? What are you teaching your organizers, Jesus, that first off you ignore her when she asks for help and your organizers, your people, try to send her away? She has to kneel in front of you to get your attention and then you call her a dog? What's actually in your heart, Jesus? 
Matthew doesn't tell us what happens between the moment the woman calls him out. Even the dogs get to eat the crumbs. And Jesus healing her daughter. So I wonder what happened in Jesus, in that moment in between when the Canaanite woman called him back to himself. Did his breath catch in his throat? Did his heart break a little for himself? Did he stop a moment, teary-eyed, and realize what he had done? We don't know what happens in that in-between moment. We just know he proclaims the woman faithful and heals her daughter. And then in the verse just after where the lectionary editors cut off this week's reading, Jesus heads for the hills again trying to get time alone. I wonder if he knew he messed up, had harmed someone, and not just anyone, but a woman, a woman considered an outsider, a woman asking for help, asking to be seen as human, asking for her life and her child's life to matter. That's the danger of performing wokeness. We end up harming people instead. The mouth betrays what's in the heart. For us here is why there's a lesson, let it be okay for Jesus to be human right now. Let it be okay for Jesus to not be good. For Jesus to have a harsh tongue and to cause harm and not try to make it all better just because it makes us uncomfortable. There's a lesson for us white folk here and maybe it's something like, Oh, look, Jesus was a racist. Don't be a racist, too. And also, I think it's something like this. The mouth betrays what's in the heart. Jesus' mouth, his choices, betrayed whatever wokeness he thought, whatever wokeness he thought he was performing. This idea of the performance of wokeness comes from an article I read while I was working on this podcast. Before everything went down in Charlottesville, I'd read this piece from a feminist of color, Lee Siang Go. It's about racism in Jane Eyre and white feminism and the white literary imagination. But her point about the performance of wokeness goes beyond the literary world to how white folks consume books and tweets and articles of folks of color to show we are good white people. But without the work, and I quote, to dismantle the material structures on which the world's injustices and exploitation turn. She talks about this false dichotomy of good white people and bad white people as, and again I quote, a form of white supremacy that exposes itself in the performance of wokeness and centers white people in their exceptional goodness. Does the self-conscious white consumption of literature the acknowledgement of race where it's convenient and a mission where it's not matter these days? I would say that yes, it matters. White supremacy in all its forms, including self-soothing delusions of goodness, matters. That good or bad dichotomy isn't helpful, she says, because everyone is complicit. No one can be clean and pure. Not even Jesus, apparently who wears his goodness, his wokeness, like a banner wrapped around him, as if his superior knowledge of Torah is going to save him. But his mouth, his actions, betray what's in his heart. There is something embedded in there, in his heart, 
that has him believing Canaanite lives don't matter. Or even if he might think he might not believe that, his actions betray him. Beloveds, I want us to hear that white supremacy teaches us that consuming the right things is what will save us. That intersection of capitalism and white supremacy works hard in us, embedding in us the idea that if we read the right books, go to the right workshops, follow the right curriculums, wear the right t-shirts, share the right social media posts, if we consume the right things and wrap them like a banner around us, that somehow we are saved, somehow we are good. Our goodness, beloveds, isn't even the point. And it's not that we shouldn't be listening, shouldn't be learning and unlearning and relearning. No, it's what we do with what we learn, unlearn and relearn, that shows whether our hearts and actions are aligned. Do we read our Michelle Alexander and our James Baldwin and our Audre Lorde and our James Cone and our Alicia Garza and wear them like a merit badge sash of wokeness? When the Canaanite woman shouts, what is our response? What is our action? In the aftermath of Charlottesville, there's going to be that tendency in us as white folks to want to distance ourselves from the Nazis, from the Klan. I feel it in myself, that temptation to wrap a banner of goodness around myself to be sure my merit badge sash of wokeness is clean and ironed and pressed and very visible. But my goodness is not the point. Our goodness is not the point. This performance of goodness, of wokeness, keeps white folks centered the focus on how good we are, that somehow white supremacy isn't us. There are already hashtags, this is not us. But white supremacy infects everything, all of us. Folks of color are clear about this, all white folks, hashtag yes, all white people, it's all of us. Even those of us who identify as progressive, as justice-seeking, as inclusive and welcoming, and all the good words we hang on our banners and print in our bulletins and wear on our t-shirts. Not even Jesus is immune to the logics of oppression that get threaded into our hearts. Jesus here in this moment in Matthew isn't good. Neither are we, beloveds. We're not immune and we're not good. That's a hard thing for us to hear because it's not what we're taught. The lies we're taught about what racism is, that it's this outrageous violent behavior of the Klan and not also, and in some ways more importantly, a system of power we are all complicit in every day. The lies we're taught that if we're not good, then we must not be worth loving. That's the flip side of the lie of dominant Christian tradition that has twisted our sacred text to answer the wrong question. We don't need to be saved and thus become good. We're already loved, already worthy by the fact of our creation. So the question is, how do we participate with the divine in that creation towards the flourishing of all life? Maybe that's what the Canaanite woman reminds Jesus. Maybe she's saying, I don't care how woke you are. If you believe my child should die, if you believe my child's life doesn't matter, Maybe she shocks him back to himself. And maybe his declaration that she's faithful, maybe that has nothing to do with him. 
but is about her own bold trust in something, a vision, a set of values, a way beyond him, way beyond him, a vision of a world where her life matters. Beloveds, here's the thing. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. In the aftermath of Charlottesville, we have to ask, actions align with the words on our lips? Are we doing the hard work of dismantling white supremacy every day in every space? That's the question for us. Not how woke or good we are, but are we doing the work? Our work, because it's our work as white folk to dismantle white supremacy. I see us with our banners and our t-shirts and our resolutions and our statements and our sermons and our posts and I'm glad, I'm so glad. We need all of us. We need all of us showing up and it's so important to be visible. It's so important to speak up and to show up. It's so important to break white silence. And it can't just be a performance. It can't just be about how good we are, that we're the woke ones, the good ones, because we're not. You may hear that as a judgment, and I want us to just hear it as a statement of reality. Our goodness doesn't matter, because we're still complicit. White supremacy is embedded in us, and we will spend the rest of our lives rooting it out, unraveling it from our own hearts, and in every institution we move in that will protect whiteness with all its power and might. Like when we're asked to resource racial justice work, and we say, not now we have to fix the roof, or the parking lot, or we have other staffing priorities right now. When we're asked to provide sanctuary to an undocumented person and we say it's too risky, it's not the right time, it's too divisive. When we honor indigenous people for five minutes with our lips but relegate them to the farthest back corner of the exhibit hall while the military gets prime space at our national meetings. When we say we care about justice and Black Lives Matter, but deliver homemade cookies to the police to thank them for protecting us. When we show up for racial justice when the cameras are rolling, but not around our own church council tables. When we claim welcome and inclusion, but clergy people of color, especially women, queer, and trans folk of color, can't get jobs in churches or get paid much less. These are examples from progressive churches. This is us, the supposed good ones. This is a very, very human Jesus performing wokeness and causing harm. That's the danger of falling into the trap that white supremacy wants to sell us, that performing wokeness is sufficient. Because the work of dismantling white supremacy is every day, in every space, organizing every day, divesting every day, doing the work every day, especially when it's not seen, when you never get a merit badge for it, when nobody knows, when the cameras are gone, when you quietly catch hell for it, when nobody thanks you for it. When the Canaanite woman shows up, and asks for us to prove that her life matters, what do we do? Jesus, for a hot second, forgot. He remembers and gets back to work, the daily work of organizing and healing and feeding, the daily work of divesting from empire and building up a new world. But we have to acknowledge he forgot. Right here, 
Jesus ain't good or woke. Right here, he's human, just like us. this week is to support the organizing and healing needs in Charlottesville. And the transcript is a list from organizers on the ground with Surge and Black Lives Matter chapters in Charlottesville of places we can shift resources towards medical, family, legal, and organizing needs. And while you can donate individually, if you're connected to a congregation, it would be great to take up a special offering set a, or set aside a, a significant percentage of your regular offering. This means you have to keep talking about Charlottesville, about white supremacy, and that too is part of the call to action and how we resist the lure of the performance of wokeness. Keep it to work every day, every week, every service, every meeting, every gathering. Thanks as always for joining me today. Let us know how your action goes. Love to hear from all of you by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. We'll be back next week with Will Green giving us a resistance word for the text for August 27th. He gave us a little sneak peek yesterday on our podcast crew call, and I think it's going to be really good. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. The transcript is available on our website, which includes references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians here in Denver who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. Big thanks to our sound editor this week, Colin Matson, and thanks to my cat Luna, who apparently needed to join me from the other side of the door for this whole entire time. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thank you so much.